Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. Uh, it remains uh, February the 18th. We have a special doubleheader late on a, on, a, on a Thursday afternoon for those of you who are still uh, watching. Uh, we are, of course, in on February 18th, 2021, still in the depths, the dark depths of the COVID epidemic. We're all stuck at home. And if there's one group of people who are having it really bad, we're all having it bad, particularly if you get sick or you know people who have been sick. But I think if there is one group of people who have it worse than everyone else, at least in terms of the psychological impact of COVID, it's teenagers. Um, in the UK, apparently, according to The Guardian today, they're just fed up. Parents and teenagers on life in the second UK lockdown all stuck together. Um, in the United States, um, many American kids, many American teenagers are experiencing a deep sense of loneliness, at least according to the Washington Post. And even in one of the most cheerful places and positive places on earth in Holland, a beloved country certainly of mine and many other people, the coronavirus is hit, hitting Dutch teenagers really hard. So what's happening with teenagers and COVID and more broadly teenagers in our culture? One person who has spent their life uh, studying teenagers is Darby Fox. She's the author of a new book, Rethinking Your Teenager, uh, a book just coming out by Oxford University Press. Uh, Darby, how bad is COVID for teenagers around the world? You know what, it's become very bad. Increasingly, as we're hitting about the one year mark, 12 months, when we went into shutdown and told everyone not really to worry that much about it, it was temporary. Um, adolescents up in through college age kids are really struggling. Isolation, um, lack of certainty, are, they're real, we're starting to see some real mental health issues. You're not quite a, do a, a doctor, Darby, but you will be soon. Uh, <laughs> what advice would you give both to parents and kids who are really suffering and being stuck at home and, 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 and too close to one another? Well, I think an important thing is to try and at first everybody kind of embrace the family time together and playing games and the meals and all of that. And I think now as it's gone on longer, we need to um, really respect the freedom or the independence of people and not necessarily require the same amount of family time that we had previously. Um, I think people are starting to kind of tire of that. And I think the other thing is we really need to encourage parents and need to encourage their teenagers to think differently. We used to tell them, all you need to do is really study hard. If you're athletic, focus on your athletics. If it's music, whatever it is, you really focus and you know what, you'll get into a great college and then everything will be good. What we need to do instead now, because that's all been taken off the table, is teach them to find a passion 
work really hard and allow some room for flexibility and some creative thinking. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalised extras like stickers, surprises and special guest artwork, each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keenon for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash keen on. Uh, let's talk specifically about the book, Darby. I'm curious as to the subtitle, Rethinking Your Teenager. Is this a book then for parents and not for teenagers? You know what? Actually, I think um, it's for both. Uh, the title is perhaps as some titles are, maybe limiting. I also think it's very good for people that have kids of any age because I clearly set out a philosophy that I think is important and never been more important than during COVID is that we need to set a mind. We, we need to think about we're not raising kids to control them. We're actually raising kids to be responsible, accountable adults. And so we need to go about that a little differently. And that's where I think it's um, more than ever very appropriate. As a parent myself of uh, one teenager and one fairly recent ex-teenager, <laughs> should we be um, thinking of children and particularly teenagers as our teenager? The idea, it almost suggests a kind of ownership. Should, should parents think that they own their, their children? Well, I don't mind the idea that you own them and that you're responsible. But what I like you to think about is not 
not controlling them. So if ownership implies to you that you need to control this person, that's not a great um, format. And if we think about it, no relationship is very successful if it's based on an authoritarian thought, like you will control me. Um, but if you own them and you have this sense like, I'm gonna be here to support you as kind of a safety net and let you grow into someone that makes their own decisions and is based on a real foundation of morals and values, then I think that's okay to, to claim it as your child. The full subtitle, uh, Darby, of the book um, is Shifting from Control and Conflict to Structure and Nurture to Raise Accountable Young Adults. I'm not so sure I'm crazy about the the structure and nurture bit, but I do like the idea of accountable young adults. What does that mean? What is accountability in young adults? So I think accountability in, yeah, and I don't want the structure and nurture to care, like to really scare you. People sometimes think, how can you have both? It's really important that you have both, that you give them a sense of, um, in order for them to build agency, which is super important, you need to have, okay, this is what I expect of you, which is the structure. And then I'm gonna understand you're not always gonna make the right choice. And we might not always agree, you'll make mistakes, but I'm still gonna love you. But there are certain things you have to do. And the accountability comes in with, this is the consequence of your behavior. And the sooner we start to teach our children, look, here, you always have a couple choices in your behavior. And some will lead a certain direction and some will lead other. What you choose to do is directly related to the consequence that, will, that you will receive. And in that, they can quickly become accountable for their behavior. Like, and it, and it isn't only the right or the wrong. It's if I choose this path, it'll bring me these things. But if I went this way, maybe I leave that behind, but there are other things. And that's something that we don't do very well. We, especially with teenagers, we try and control them. You say, you must do this, you must do that. And then you impose a consequence. And it doesn't really allow them to think it through and make their own decision. Are you suggesting that we need to raise moral teenagers, yes. Darby? Andrew. With moral <laughs> education. Moral education. Well, there will, kids will get pissed with that. If you start telling them to be moral, they'll tell you to piss up, won't they? No, actually, I don't think they will. I think we have to do it differently. We, we can't demand morality from them. But if we say, listen, um, what do you think? What would it be like for you if you were in this position? Or what's the right thing to do? Um, kids actually have a really strong sense of right or wrong. And most of them want to please people. But where we go astray in adolescence is assuming that um, they, one, don't want to listen to us and that they're just trying to um, antagonize us. We actually have to, that's where in the book, I think a really important piece to bring in is what's happening in their brain? What's the neurobiology? And if we know what's going through their brain chemically and with neurotransmitters, then we can really adjust what we expect. And that helps us to bring in morality and therefore get accountability. I think my, my children's uh, goal in life is to make moral parents, but maybe it's because they have particularly <laughs> Well, moral, you know what, there's I mean, no a particularly immoral father. Um, uh, Darby, your book 
you're in the business of exploding myths. You explode um, eight myths in the book, uh, eight chapters, each one focusing on a particular myth. Uh, is there one myth in particular that you think is essential to explode when it comes to teenagers? I, I think the myth that I, I think the most important thing to understand is so frequently with adolescents, we hear the myth that they don't care about what we think. They don't care about anybody but their friends. And um, I think that if that's where you start, that's actually really detrimental. Adolescents actually care more than just about anybody else what, what people think of them. And what we want to make sure is that we allow a space where we can say, I love you to death, but maybe what you chose isn't awesome. And I'm going to still be here and hang with you when you make the wrong choice. And I might, you know, take the car for the week or you might not go out next weekend, but I'm not going to withdraw my love. I'm just going to help you redirect. And that is a myth I think is most important is I love working with adolescents because they actually really care. And we do know through research if adolescents have mentors, strong mentorship, whether it's a music teacher, a teacher, a coach, um, a parent, then um, they really have that that moral sense of um, agency and a desire to give back and, and act a certain way. Um, Darby, one of the, the things I think if you ask most parents about their teenagers, the first thing that will come up is social media. We have lots of reports every day. This is from the BBC today. Social media damages teenagers' mental health. Is there any truth to that or is that a myth? Uh, it is not a myth. Um, there can be some amazing things with social media. We can learn things quicklier. We uh, quicklier. I'm not sure that's a word, but quicker. Um, we have access to information that we didn't before. But what happens is we've gone from human beings that are basically experiential, and we have to experience. We we're three dimensional. I see you, Andrew, and I say, oh, he looks mad at me, or he's not listening to me because of your posture, your language. When we're on social media, all we see is what someone else wants us to see. So for kids that are trying to develop a sense of um, how to build a relationship, whether it's just with other friends or intimacy, and they can't really get what is happening with body language or tone, posture, and then it all looks good, it automatically makes you feel like you're not part of it. You're outside of that screen and you're less than. And that's where we really have seen as troubling escalation in suicide, mental health issues, a sense of I'm not good enough. I don't belong. And I, I, one of the myths I like that you exploded in this is your fifth myth that adolescents, you say, the myth is that they're amazing multitaskers and you suggest they're not. And I think you're absolutely right. I think multitasking is overrated in every sense. It is, and, and we do know now, we didn't know this a long time ago, but now that we can see inside the brain with different scans and tests and we can monitor, we know a lot more about how the brain functions. And um, it's not meant to multitask. It actually is a very efficient machine, so it can. But when you're shifting constantly and the brain is going back and forth, answering a text, trying to take your class in online, or whether you're driving and changing the radio station and picking up a call, 
your brain is moving that quickly from thing to thing, and it's not really taking anything in. So that's where we see a lot of burned out kids and they're not learning quite right and very stressed because you're frazzling the brain. So you have that sense of, oh my gosh, when is this gonna stop? And we see that in behavior. Um, do you think that teenagers need, outside the family, of course, they hopefully will believe in their parents and their culture, but do they need something else to believe in? We had um, last year a very brilliant young woman, uh, Hannah Testa, a, a teenager on the show. She's committed her teenage years to fighting the, the plastics industry and the consequence of, uh, of, 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 of um, horrible, the, the, the horrible impact of plastics on, on, on wildlife. Um, she quoted uh, in her book uh, a man called Robert Swan, the guy who discovered, uh, who, who was the first uh, explorer to, to the Antarctic. He said, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Um, and she, uh, in, her war, in, her, in her book, talks about the five R's to refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. Of course, this brings to mind uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, right. who perhaps the best-known uh, teenage environmental activist. Is environmentalism the, the cause of early 21st century teenagers? Is it the thing that's taking them out of themselves, giving them a sense of agency? I, I think it's one of them. I think what we want to do is really encourage people to find some kind of you know, sense of agency like that, some cause, something be bigger than themselves, not just academics, not just getting a strong SAT score. So I think that's really important. It, it could be environmentalism. It could be, we've seen a lot more political activism. Um, certainly we've seen a lot of people trying to give back to young kids, the escalation of people that want to volunteer for places like Habitat for Humanity, where they're actually building homes for other, anything that brings in an awareness that is outside of yourself is really important for adolescents and particularly now, because it gives you a sense that no matter what you're experiencing, you can connect to other people and it's maybe not so bad. Whenever yeah. we're really struggling internally, we want to look outside and say, okay, wait, is it really so bad for me? And there's some nice examples of this. It's always easy to um, find news headlines about teenagers being miserable or suicidal or, or, or violent. But there are stories about teen volunteers for vaccines, uh, other, other news stories about teens helping teens, uh, less, less well off than them, less privileged. Uh, and some people are even calling for teenagers to have a place at Biden's climate table are those the sorts of things that you're you're talking about to, to 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 make teenagers more accountable in terms of your book? Yes, I think those are some of the things. I think what's really important, though, is that teens have find something that they're actually passionate about. I don't want them to just think about, okay, I'm going to do environmentalism seems super popular right now and I want to seat at Biden's table because then I will get into Harvard or Stanford. I don't want them to have that end goal. I actually would love for people to come back and think, okay, I need to build a really strong foundation because I don't know what may happen. COVID has given us this sense of both 
isolation and uncertainty that we never knew before. And your, your teenagers are going to be just fine if they know who they are at the core. And that's where we want them to develop authentic passions. So it, it could be pets. It could be walking pets. It could be the environment. But whatever it is, it really has to um, be true. Some teenagers, of course, the lives of teenagers in America uh, are very different. Um, being a black teenager in the United States, many people believe, particularly uh, uh, African-Americans, it's, it's a quite different experience. I know your book is not that political a book, but right. do you think that the experience of African-American teenagers and Latino teenagers is very different from the typical white teenager? I think so. I mean, I think particularly where they're raised has a lot to do with the differences and it's it's unfortunate. But again, I think that if one of the best ways to make people more aware and to not have such great um, divide between them is if we actually go back to who you are as a person and you treat everybody the same, no matter what the skin color is, what the inside is the same, we're built on the inside, I think we could get through a lot of that. It's not what everybody sees, it's who are you on the inside that's really the most significant. And I think we could do a better job of that in America. Your eighth myth, uh, Darby, is today's adolescents struggle with mental health disorders because they've had it easy. They don't want to deal with the reality of life because they're spoiled. Now, we had um, a very distinguished writer, Roy Richard Grinker, on the show, uh, who has a book called Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Roy Richard Grinker himself has a daughter who has suffered some, some elements of mental illness. Has I know this is not necessarily your core field, but do you think that today's generation of teenagers are more prone to mental illness than you, your and my generation? You know, I want to I wanna answer that carefully. I don't know if they're more prone to it. I think we are more prone to diagnosing it. And perhaps I think the best way, frequently in my private practice, people bring me their kids and they say, this is what's wrong with them. What I would prefer people did was say, look, these are their strengths, but here's where they're struggling. And then we can look at that just as if we did a mental, uh, a medical disease, like if, if it's diabetes or something else. Um, I, I think it would be, we haven't done a great job of saying, okay, what seems to be troubling you? Here are your strengths. How can we overcome it? And we too quickly think, oh my gosh, you know, we need to prescribe a pill or you know, give them extra time on a test and that's gonna take it away. I think we need to go back to requiring people to know what their strengths and weaknesses are, especially adolescents and say, okay, use your strengths to overcome some of your weaknesses. And we can then work through what is this stigma of mental illness? Uh, of course, there's some very serious mental illnesses that um, need to be treated differently, but by and large, we don't always wanna find an excuse or anxiety, or stress, or label everything as depression. Darby, your day job is as a therapist. I have one anecdotal story from my daughter's high school. She's not there anymore. Uh, but she told me that uh, one day a week, uh, when they were allowed to go to therapy, 
90% of the kids in her class had therapists. Uh, that, as I said, that's anecdotal, but it does right. seem as if this is a generation very much attached to therapy and, and therapists, which might be a good thing. Is that fair? I think that's fair and I think it's a good thing. I think that name therapist always kind of scares people a little bit, adults, like no one wants to go to a therapist because that implies something's wrong with you. But I think if we did a better job of saying, what is therapy? Like, you know, a strong therapist allows you to sort of think through some of the things you question or you struggle with and maybe come to a different solution or something that makes you feel better. Um, you can raise your self-esteem. If we, we looked at that as there, if we define therapy differently, I think um, it would be better. And I think it can be super beneficial. Troubled teenagers, Darby. Uh, we had uh, the New York Times uh, writer, Kenneth Rosen on the show earlier this year. He was a troubled teenager and he, he writes a, an autobiographical book, Troubled, the, fail, the Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. He writes about places like Deep Springs Ranch for Kids, which looks nice. This place has now fortunately been shut, but we're very punitive, almost like prisons. You don't write that much about troubled teenagers, but Clearly, Rosen's argument um, is, is self-evident. These, these, these places don't work. What, what should troubled teenagers do and what should parents do with troubled teenagers? I know that's a very broad question, but if, if you're really worried about your teenager, uh, it's not enough just to read books like yours, of course. No, it's not. And I think if you're really worried about your teenager or certainly if you're seeing... Um, behavior that you feel is pretty out of the norm, or whether it be drinking or uh, becoming, you know, using drugs or getting high all the time, that is usually goes back to a sense of inadequacy, a lack of self-esteem. And obviously it, it escalates if, if it continues. And so for, if your child, if, if there's a great deal of um, animosity in your relationship. I think you need to seek help. And for people who feel sort of sense that um, their child is not socially really connected, anything that has a lack of connection will most likely develop into some kind of troubled teenager. And I think it's really important we could do a much better job of connecting with the troubled teenager because it usually goes back to them feeling inadequate at some level. And whatever they choose to go to, whether it's drug use or, you know, connecting with lots of different, you know, sexual encounters, whatever that may be, it's actually usually from a lack of connection and self-worth. And we could do a better job of really being aware of that and trying to create connection. Your sixth myth, uh, Darby, is that drugs and alcohol only temporarily impact my teenager. So warning then about drugs and alcohol. We had the distinguished Columbia academic, uh, Dr. Carl Hart on the show, um, arguing for drug use for grownups. Now, to be very clear, he was not saying that adolescents, um, teenagers should be allowed to use drugs. But do you think that our culture has become too permissive when, it come, when it's come to, to, to drugs and, of course, alcohol? Um, yes, I think it's way too permissive. Uh, in my practice, I frequently see that somehow ninth 
great parents of ninth graders really um, do allow their kids, oh, they're going to do it on their own anyway, so I'd rather they do it in my own home, or especially the legalization in the United States of marijuana is sort of been misread as meaning it's not harmful. I think that what we don't understand is one of the most important things we can keep in mind is the brain is developing. It's developing faster than at any other time in your child's life than when they're in utero. And if we ask people, I frequently ask this in a lecture, how many of you guys' moms did drugs and drank while you were pregnant? And they look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, what? Why would my mom do that? She was pregnant. Exact same analogy, you fast forward it to a developing brain of an adolescent and the impact of THC and alcohol on a developing brain is catastrophic. So I think we are way too lax on that. When it comes to developing brains, uh, we've already talked about the impact of social media. We had my my dear friend Tiffany Schlein on the show, my uh, Bay Area neighbor. Her book, 24-6, about giving up a day a week on screens. Is that good policy? What other concrete policies from a family parental point of view do you think can help bring up more responsible and accountable teenagers? I think uh, giving up the, the phone or the social media at certain times each day is important. But I think most importantly, it is to do something like um, ask your kids, at, expect something from your teenagers. Don't just get mad at them and then make their breakfast. Show them a sense of responsibility, like in a relationship, if you act a certain way, then you'll get a certain response. And we could do a lot better job of teaching that. We somehow have this notion that, you know, as parents, we provide whatever, and regardless of how kids act. And I think if you want them to be accountable, you need to hold them accountable. And most often parents will pose a consequence or a like you're grounded but then the kid knows within three days it's going to be gone so that doesn't really mean much and quickly you see them going off of that well darby fox uh rethinking your teenager very stimulating particularly from a, a parent's point of view i hope it's a must read it's an oxford university press a very uh, very credible publication so well worth reading. I hope your next book is Rethinking Your Parent. Is that is that on the cards, Darby? <laughs> yes, Rethinking Your Parents. <laughs> no, um, I think something to do with, we, we spoke briefly off camera, Andrew, of um, the age group of possibly 20 through 25. I think that's an important group mm. of um, going from adolescent to young adult what challenges and how can we better prepare them? Yeah, and teenager, of course, is a, I guess it's a subjective term. I know a lot of, a lot of 20-year-old, 20-something-year-olds who are, in my mind, at least teenagers. Anyway, a, a, a wonderful conversation. And, and, and uh, uh, when, I'm, when I'm troubled, Darby, I'll come, and, and I'll, I'll come to you as a therapist. Uh, you're stuck in Connecticut at the moment. What else, in addition to your new book, should people be reading uh, to make sense of the world of themselves in these strange times? Uh, I think that um, the Child Mind Institute, Institute in New York City puts out a lot of good information. They have a new book 
um, about scaffolding sort of the lives of your child so that you begin to um, build the accountability. I love Daniel Siegel, No Drama Discipline. Um, there's several people like that who really engage in giving, encouraging that we give kids responsibility and acknowledgement at younger ages so that we build on accountability. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.